20, verses 1 through 16. I'm going to read this, and it will pop up magically on the screen. And all of this uh, is from our Lord and Savior. Jesus uh, has the mic uh, for this parable, which is a story to teach us about God. Okay. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. And he said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. And he asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us. They answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, which is kind of the the worker that's over the other workers, Call the workers and pay them their wages. Pay them their money. Beginning with the last ones hired, going to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius, which is like a day's wages. So when they came, when those, when, so when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. When they received it, They began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour. And you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work in the heat of the day. But he answered them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am so generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be... This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for the Bible. And we're so thankful that in the Bible we learn how important it is for us all to worship you and to learn from your scriptures. And this morning, Father, give us a posture of submission to your word. Use the Bible to change us. Use it to correct where we are, have wrong thinking or wrong actions. Where our heart is not aligned with you. And Father, we pray for our church, and specifically this morning, we pray for the kids. We pray that they would grow up to be men and women who know you, who love you, and want to make your name known. May they love each other well. May they see the outsider and welcome them in. And may we as adults steward and care for them well. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so let's recap this. The owner of this vineyard, which is like a, kind of like a farm, he hires day laborers at various points during that day. He hires some at six in the morning who put in a full day's work. Then he hires some at noon to put in a half day's work. Then he hires some an hour before quitting time. But the owner pays everybody a full day's wages. That denarius. 
And not only does he do this, he goes out of his way to line up those workers so that everyone knows they're all being paid the same despite working different hours. And not surprisingly, those hired first complained that they worked longer but earned no more money, not a penny more than those who worked an hour or two who got there late in the day. And the owner's response to their frustration was simply, I'm doing you no wrong. You agreed to this. I'm paying you what you agreed to. It's my decision to be generous. I just want to get out in front of this and say, this is no way to run a business. If you have run a lemonade stand in your front yard and your little sister comes over halfway through you know, the morning... She ain't getting paid the same as the sister that got there first thing. I mean, can you imagine the incredulous looks on the workers that have been there all day? They could have shown up five minutes before quitting time. They're thinking to themselves as they walk away, we could have spent the whole morning sleeping in, hanging out, doing whatever we wanted to, showed up right before quitting time and made the same amount of money. It's unreal. It is absurd what happens here. And let me put this in perspective for you kids and for you adults. I've got some friends that every spring, they circle a Saturday on their calendar. They have three kids, circle a Saturday on the calendar, and it's kind of like spring cleaning day for their family. And so they, they get up the, the, the night before, they set, they set aside some time and write down a long list of all the chores they need to get done. This is cleaning out the attic, cleaning out the closets, weeding the garden. They are mopping the floors, they're cleaning the baseboards, all those things that you just don't do on a regular basis. They set aside one Saturday to do it. But they tell the kids, and the kids know this, that if we work hard all day, knock out the list, we're all going to go out to dinner wherever the kids decide. And then after dinner, they go to the movies and go spend, you know, $800. That's what it costs to go to the movies these days for a family of five to go to a movie all together. So in this scenario, what would happen if one of those three kids got up at 745, got themselves dressed, showed up in the kitchen, said, I'm ready to go and worked hard from 8 a.m. all the way to 5? But then the second sibling, he decided to sleep in a little bit. Got up about 10, kind of laid around in his, in his warm covers for a little bit, strolled out of bed at 11, and then was put to work. You know, he's like, oh, some things have already been done. Great. I'll go ahead, you know, on to the second page. But then the third sibling, homeboy forgot all about the whole thing. He spent the night with a friend the night before, comes strolling in about 4 p.m., does a little bit of sweeping in the kitchen, maybe rearranges the shoes in his closet, and then the, you know, 5 o'clock comes around, and they all go out to dinner. If this happened in my home, and I know some of you, if this happened in your home, there would be riots taking place. It would be un, It would be unbelievable. People will be looking at each other, screaming, this is insane. Or at least I get to pick. They don't get to pick the restaurant. I get to pick the restaurant. I was here all day. They want to go see, you know, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle movie. We're going to see Meg 2. I worked longer. 
This would have been the argument in the car. And to be honest, like, I get that. Like, is that, those kids, the ones that worked all day said, this is insane, this is absurd, this is incredibly unreasonable mom and dad. It would be the same reaction as those men and women in the parable 2,000 years ago. But I also want us all to recognize that what else is insane Something else that is absurd, disorienting, and wildly unreasonable is the grace of God. It is absurd, disorienting at times, makes no sense from a human perspective. The unmerited favor of God, the fact that God, in His goodness, welcomes us sinners into his family, adopts us, the grace that no matter what you've done, no matter what sin you've committed, we have been forgiven of it because of Jesus. Absurd. Ephesians 2, Paul tells us, says it is by grace you've been saved through faith, not from yourselves, but it's a gift of God. So Not by works so that no one can boast. Grace is absurd. Let me tell you a story from the Bible. Put this in the context about the guy that wrote that in Ephesians 2. Got it by the name of Apostle Paul. So Paul wrote an enormous chunk of the New Testament, planted churches, mentored younger believers, a theologian, a titan of the faith. I mean, a person that we're all looking forward to meeting in the kingdom after we pass. However, before he was Paul, Paul went by a different name. Kids, anybody know Paul's previous name? Go ahead, big guy. It's all right. It's close. It rhymes with Paul. That's your first clue. Augustine? Saul. So before he was Paul, he was? And as the book of Acts tells us, Paul, before he was Paul, was not just a non-Christian. Not just somebody that didn't believe. He actually hated Christians. Paul, before he was Paul, back in the days of when he was Saul, he hated the church to the point where he would persecute, which persecute is a big word that just means to be terribly unkind, mean towards Christians just because they were Christians. It's even recorded that Paul, before he became a Christian, murdered, killed men and women who believed in Jesus. So this man killed Christians, then he became a Christian. He had a conversion moment where he repented of his past sins, and Paul was the the worker in a lot of ways, looking at this passage, who showed up at the end of the day. He had not only been lazy, he'd done terrible things all morning, showed up, was invited to come be a part of this vineyard, shows up at the end of the day, and gets paid the exact same. And I thought about it. When Paul died, when he passed away, and he is walking in to heaven, how do you think the men and women he killed felt about him? Years ago, I read a quote that I'll remember forever, and it said, The Apostle Paul entered heaven to the cheers 
to the cheers of those he killed, because that's how the gospel works. The Apostle Paul, who murdered people, who those people believed in Jesus, went ahead on to be with the Lord, ahead of Paul. When Paul then met them, no cold shoulder. No, well, you, you, know, you work a little bit here. You're not getting paid the same as us. The Gospel tells us that they would have welcomed him with open arms. Grace is absurd. When we think about this, the context of this passage in Matthew 20, right before that, Jesus has been giving surprising examples for God's kingdom. For example, he welcomes children in, even though legally back then they had zero rights at all. He's clear that the, the, the kingdom doesn't just belong to the rich, even honestly not even to very many of them, according to Matthew 19. It belongs to those who follow him, and in particular those who suffer. Many who are first will be last, and the last will be The present parable is immediately even following the ending with those same words. The first will be last, and the last will be first. And this suggests that this story is a continuation of the point Jesus is trying to make about the kingdom. That entry into God's kingdom is not gained by our work or action, but by the generosity of God. And if we believe this, to the extent that we believe this, it will not only transform us, but transform community. I'm going to tell you a story from my childhood. When I was in ninth grade, uh, raise your hand if, you're in, if you've been to fifth grade yet. You, adults, you can raise your hands too. Here we go. All right, sixth grade. Any ninth graders in the room who've been in ninth grade? Yes, Bella, you know, smart enough, but not there yet. When I was in ninth grade, midway through the year, I switched schools. I went from a school called Chattahoochee High School, um, which up, is up in Johns Creek area, to a school called Greater Atlanta Christian, which is over in Norcross. And so when you switch schools, it's always a little tricky to align all the classes from what you were taking to kind of how they do it in different sequences at the new school. And it's especially difficult in the middle of the year. Well, the day I was starting class, so I came that January, I started class, I met with a counselor to get my schedule of kind of where am I going. Brand new student, don't know where anything is. Well, the counselor was there, I was there, but also there was another man in the room. A guy that by the name of Dr. Love, and he was the head of the math department. He introduced himself, and he was a 60, 65-year-old man, had a huge grin on his face. He was incredibly excited that I was at the school. And he personally asked if he could have me in his classroom, his trigonometry slash geometry class. And you know, being a new student, being intimidated, very insecure, I felt great just to be invited in. Now, some context here. I was pretty good at math. Both of my parents were math majors in college, one at Agnes Scott, one at Georgia Tech. I was what they called an honors student. You can hold your applause till the end. That's fine. An honors student, which means that I was one grade ahead of kind of the normal sequence for math. Decently smart. I was like, this makes sense. You would want me in your class. Well, the next day I got to math class, and it was a very small classroom. Only eight students in there. And at the beginning of the class, Dr. Love invited 14-year-old Drew, 14 years old, brought me out to the class. And he said, I'd like to welcome Drew to our class. Drew is new here, 
but based upon his track record, that his previous school is going to fit right in. Then he turned to me and he said, Drew, I'd like you to consider being on the math team and joining our math elites. I had never heard this word. <laughs> math athletes. And, but he said it clear as day. I kept my face, you know, tried not to smile. And he said, we, the math elites, are pursuing a state championship, and we think you should be on the team. And guys, I cannot adequately express the confusion I was experiencing. I didn't know that there were math competitions. Definitely didn't know there were state winners at this. And Lord knows I'd never heard of a math elite. But as he said it, the room, these other eight kids went bananas. They're high-fiving each other so incredibly pumped. We're going to dominate this year. <laughs> and to be honest, it felt great. Like, I learned later that math, it's like the pecking order for cool at this new school was like football, math. And I was like 108 pounds soaking wet, so football was off the list. So I was like, math, great, second best thing. As a new student, more than anything, I just longed for someone to take me in, to make me feel like I belonged, to have a group to sit with at the lunch table. And they were so pumped to have me, and I was pumped to be, you know, to have a sense of belonging. So fast forward a few weeks, and the math team, still incredibly pumped about this prospect of me joining their team, but I was starting to see some cracks in this entire situation. For starters, we were two to three tests in. The other eight kids in the class had not made below a 98. I was consistently making 75s, 78s, 81s. Yet, when homework was being graded, I was the only one doing it. They didn't do homework, didn't bother them, didn't do any work outside of it. And I had the best homework average, yet somehow the lowest test average. When we would do these tests, not only were they making incredibly great grades, they would race through the test, and then slam their pencils down on the desk just to announce, I am not only making 100, I'm the best at this. I just started slamming mine down at random points, even though I wasn't even finished with it. Well, at this point, I realized I've never struggled in math, and I'm having a terrible time, so I start asking more questions. And it turns out that at my old school, the math sequence went Algebra 1, Trig, Geometry, and then Algebra 2. At the new school, it went Algebra 1, Algebra 2, and then Trig, Geometry. So what they thought was happening is I had already had these other classes. And they thought, oh, not only is he one year ahead, he's two years advanced. This is like Doogie Howser's what they thought I was. And then I started to ask more questions. As they were talking about SAT scores in the ninth grade, I realized four of the eight of them got a perfect score on the ninth grade, in the ninth grade on the SAT. And at that point, it hit me. I 1,000% do not belong in this classroom. They all think I'm something. They think I'm a math elite. They think I'm a math wizard. And I'm absolutely not. I felt like a fraud an imposter, and I really was. And the act was going to run out at some point. I mean, at first, I didn't know what a mathlete was, but I was happy to be one. A month in, I was very sure what a mathlete was, also very sure I was not 
one. And I say this whole story to name how I felt three or four or five weeks in is how so many of you feel in Christian community. You've experienced fellowship, specifically you've experienced the church. You come in, everyone's excited to see you, excited to welcome you in, excited to have you over for dinner, and you're pumped to make friends. You're pumped to get connected. However, a few months in, or a few weeks in, maybe a month in, maybe a few months in, you start to experience this feeling that these people are something that maybe you just aren't. If they knew my sin, they would not accept me. If they knew how much I worried, if they knew my family struggles, my faults, my struggles on the Internet, my lack of Bible knowledge, my short temper with my kids, my struggling marriage, my laziness at work, they would know that despite what I put on, on the inside, I just don't belong. What I want you to hear from me, and more specifically from the Bible, from this passage, is this ant, how it works. The lie from Satan is that you have to earn your place before God, as well as earn your place with each other. But the gospel tells us something different. The gospel tells us that we have fellowship with God, not by our works, but by grace. And as that sinks in, we recognize that we belong to each other, not despite our, not because of our goodness or, despite, or, or you know, cleaning up our faults, but we belong to each other because of the generosity of the gospel. Barry, you can come on up. And what I want you to hear from me as we head towards the communion table is that we take communion in thinking about this parable, as this is God telling us that no matter what sin you committed this week, you can come to the table. It's us, it's if we, in line with the parable, it's saying if you arrived at 6 a.m. or 4.55 p.m., at 5 p.m., the promise belongs to you. What we bring to the table is not our goodness. What we bring to the table is our humility in recognizing that we as well as everybody else in this room, only belong because of grace. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for the...